In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Well, today we're going to take another look at Isaiah. We've been going through Isaiah quite a bit, haven't we? And, well, Isaiah figures so prominently in this Christmas season that it's, uh, I think it's good to, uh, to investigate this background and history of it and why, you know, these certain passages from Isaiah appear at this time of year. Yeah, and it, I think I've mentioned this before, but Isaiah is often called the, the fifth gospel. So the four gospels are pretty easy to, to identify, mm-hmm. right? Matthew, mm-hmm. Mark, Luke, and John. And when we think about what a gospel is, it's describing Jesus's own life. And if we think of like the fifth gospel, maybe we, our minds jump quickly to the New Testament because all the other four gospels are there. But the early church would frequently refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel because of what a clear image and picture of Jesus that Isaiah gives. So when you're talking about the early church, are you talking about the first century before all the, before the most of the New Testament had been written and assembled, or, or maybe a little bit later than that. I think a little bit later than the, the New Testament had been assembled. Okay. Um, exact dates, I do not know. You stumped oh, me oh, on that right. one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you threw out the term, but I thought, well, that's maybe I know, know more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, today, our text comes from Isaiah chapter nine, and. I think the background for this, so I, I, this is going to be a very familiar text for each of us, but the background for this shines so much light into not only how Christ, how Christ, Jesus, fulfills it, but also what was going on in that situation. I think, I think each of us will, will, will kind of like gather a lot more appreciation, at least I did, when I dug into the historical background of this. Um, I've mentioned before that uh, there's both the the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, Northern Kingdom of Israel, the Southern Kingdom of Judah um, during Isaiah's prophecy. So he begins his prophesying and his ministry around 740 BC. Well, he actually lives through the exile of Israel to Assyria. So, I mean, just a a very impactful time. And in that time window, there's a lot that goes on, just more than just Assyria coming down. So there's the the divide between Israel and Judah. Israel, in this case, and and as a heads up, if, if Isaiah began his ministry in 740, it was only until 722 B.C., that Israel was taken captive. So that's about 18 years since he began his ministry. Now, we don't know exactly when he wrote and confronted Israel and Judah during this time, but hopefully that gives you kind of like a time frame, time reference. So what's going on here is that both Israel and Judah know Assyria is coming. 
So the question becomes a matter of trust. Who is Israel going to trust? And who is Judah going to trust in the face of this opposition? For Israel, they quickly choose the trust in other nations. They quickly jump to Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, very confusing time, but mm -hmm. Syria or Aram. They ally themselves with Syria to protect themselves from Assyria. Now, Judah is also here. They know that Assyria is coming. They decide not to join the alliance. So what does Israel and what does Syria do? They try to force Judah into the alliance. So they want three people against Assyria. That way they have better odds. That's, that's more or less what's going on. Mm -hmm. So not only is, do we see um, the attack from Assyria, but right now, Isaiah is approaching the king of Judah, King Ahaz, and he's telling him, don't worry. Right now, Israel and Syria are coming to you to attack you. Don't put your trust in other nations as Israel put their trust in other nations. Put your trust in God. So that's more or less the kind of the, the, the climax or the, the confrontation going on. So a lot going on, but really, um, you know, Assyria is the one that, that takes them out, but the real conflict right now isn't even Assyria, it's that alliance between Israel and Syria, which come and attack Judah. So that's what's going on behind the scenes, uh, so to say. And here in this chapter, um, in this section of Isaiah, specifically looking at chapters 7 to 39, it's it's over this, this idea of trust, this concept of trust. You know, is the king of Judah going to trust in God, or is he going to trust in other nations like Israel trusted in other nations? Um, so that's the theme of this section, verses, chapters 7 to 39. In chapter 7, he actually confronts King Ahaz. Chapter 9 serves as kind of like the climax of this issue of trust. And this is where we... You know, it shines so much light into this very common um, reading from the Old Testament from Isaiah. And I think this would be a good time in which to, to jump in and, and read that. Would you mind doing that, Paul? Uh, would you like the entire passage or just uh, maybe, maybe the first five verses? Um, we can... Uh, let's go with uh, verses 2 to 5. Okay. That okay. sounds good. That seemed like a logical division of the, uh, of the passage. Yeah, I think so. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
so we have to remind ourselves that um, when Isaiah is writing, he's writing to uh, uh, King Ahaz. Mm -hmm. And here, when he's, telling King, when he's talking to King Ahaz, he's asking him, are you going to trust in God or are you going to trust in other nations? When in verse 2, we give the, we're given this picture of the dawn, the light coming forth. The people in darkness have seen a great light. That image of the dawn the, or light is frequently associated with God's own presence. So it's, it's an answer to that question. Are you going to trust in God or are you going to trust in the nations? Well, if you trust in God, God will do these things. And so he promises and tells in detail what that will look like. Um, in verse 3, we have a beautiful turning um, of fears into joy. So, for example, um, you have multiplied the nations. So with God's presence comes this multiplying of the nations. In other words, your population is going to grow. Here, King Ahaz was worried that the nation was going to be wiped out. All people would be gone. On the um, opposite side, what God brings is a multiplying of nations, multiplying of people. Um, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. And then we have, as with joy at the harvest. Again, this picture of abundance. Um, whereas King Ahaz was concerned that um, the food would be scarce. There would be a famine brought onto the land because of Israel and Judah coming and attacking them. Here we have strongly associated with God's presence, this abundance of food, as in a harvest. And then it goes on, as they are glad when they, are, when they divide the spoil. Once again, the, there's this contrast between what, what fear King Ahaz has, which is they will be spoiled by Israel as well as Syria, but instead of them becoming spoiled, if they trust in God, they will take away spoil. So it's kind of like this neat inversion between the two. We continue um, in, in, in verse 4. Uh, this really gives the answer for why people are rejoicing in verse 3, which is to say um, the immediate cause is that uh, God, with his presence, has also come to bring freedom. And so we have, for the yoke of his burden, and the staff or his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. So God, with his presence, brings freedom. And the day of Midian is actually a, um, a beautiful connection elsewhere in Scripture. And I think it really fills in, again, um, the background of all that's going on with King Ahaz and his situation. Um, so the, the, the men of Midian, they came and actually ruled over Israel at a time during the um, period of the judges. And this is, you're probably familiar with Samson, is, is the one that really sticks out. Right. So in terms, of, in terms of distance, in terms of years, what are we talking about uh, before this event? So let's see. King Ahaz, if this is if this is around 740, um, King Solomon began his reign around 970, and this is just thinking off the okay, top of my head. Sure. Um, the judges would have ruled 
um, around the 1000 BC, a little bit earlier than 1000 BC. So we're talking about 400 years, maybe. Okay, many centuries before this. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's approximation. So sure, sure. don't don't fact check me and bring <laughs> this one up on me. So, um, so that, yeah, a few yeah, centuries later, um, the Midians um, came and ruled, conquered Israel, and this is when the the two were one nation before the split, and. Um, God decided to use these judges, judges like Samson, to come and deliver the Israelites. Well, one of the judges was, was Gideon, and Gideon helped deliver Israel from the hands of the Midianites, and the way that God does it is what's key. He could have had Gideon go with all pomp and strength to free the people of Israel, but Gideon recognizes that he's from this very um, low and weak and small clan of Manasseh. And then he goes on, um, when he collects and gathers people, God says, no, you have, you have too many. Go with fewer people to free Israel from Midians. So he gets rid of some. No, you still have too many. Continues to reduce the number of people until there's only 300 people left. And then with those 300 people, he goes up to the camp, and if he, uh, Gideon actually sneaks up at night, listens to what the people are talking about, and there's this person who has this, this vision, and there's, they're, they're describing and interpreting the vision. This is the enemies that he's listening to, and the enemies are saying, well, this could be none other than the hand of Gideon. And they were all terrified by Gideon, this image of, of what God has basically delivered into their hands. So it's again like, you know, where are you going to put your trust? Are you going to put your trust in numbers and strength? Or are you going to put your trust in God to deliver you? God, uh, Gideon, with the 300 people, did deliver them. And then again, at the, afterwards, he's confronted by um, Ephraim, uh, who was upset that Gideon didn't have them come and, and help and destroy them earlier because in their mind, they, they thought, if there was greater number that went with Gideon, they could have delivered and, and completely destroyed all of, um, all of the Midianites. And um, it, Gideon's response, I don't have it off the, offhand, but he responds with just a wonderful response saying, well, I and I, well, well, the men and I went and did this. Where were you? What did you accomplish in that time? And so all the people of, of Ephraim were just, were, were shut up quiet. And I, I love the image there because it's, it's so fitting for King Ahaz. It's what he needed to hear in the midst of this, you know, both Israel and Syria as well as Assyria coming, these big, terrifying nations that are coming to destroy him. And here Isaiah is saying, look at the time of Gideon. Remember what Gideon did with so few. Well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great lesson in humility and trust that both for Ahaz and for Ephraim, that um, they, they really just needed to turn things over to God and put it in, in his hands. It is, yes, yes. Uh, mo moving on, or the, the last section of the, the passage or the portion that you read goes on to say that um, every boot of the, of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned. 
Um, here it's giving us an image of, of how God will end the oppression. He'll, he'll completely remove it, remove warfare. So it isn't, um, it's kind of, again, it goes, goes from that contrast of here Ahaz was thinking that to end warfare, he needs more warfare. But instead, God is saying, no, the solution isn't more warfare. It'll end without warfare. I will bring the end of warfare. And what does that look like? Well, there will be no more of these, these trampling boots. There will no, mo no more be garments rolled in blood. And so there's this exchange of these, these garments, these military or um, battle array garments. And you know, it, it kind of leaves you wondering, you know, what, are they, what, what do you have in the end? What are, how are you dressed? If it isn't garments of blood, what is it? Garments is a big theme throughout Isaiah. You know, the, mm -hmm. Um, garments strongly being associated with either that of sin and being replaced with garments of righteousness. So I think that's kind of the image that he's bringing and leading us to. Would you mind reading the um, next two verses? And I think these verses are the ones that really, really stick out. Very clear picture of, of Jesus coming in the prophecy of Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's, it's so beautiful. I love it in its context because it, we, we see the fulfillment in Christ. We know that it's fulfilled in Christ. You know, it's a child who will be born. And then to, to view it also in this historical context, being spoken to King, to King Ahaz, who is looking to the might of these nations for help, for him... It's kind of just like a, you know, a, how would you say it? It's a, it's a, it's a, an abrupt shock to what he's looking for. He's looking for strength. Here, God is promising a little child. Mm -hmm. Again, emphasizing that uh, the way or the means by which Gideon came and saved his people. So also, God is going to deliver his people once again from a small child. Um, so something that's very meek. And when we go on and we read exactly um, who this child is, it's, it's very apparent that it's not just a, a, a person, a human, but it's, it's God himself. It's the Messiah. And we get this with the, the number of names that are being used. Wonderful Counselor, but then Mighty God and Everlasting Father. So you can't just call the Savior, this person who's going to come and save save you someone who's also God and also an everlasting father when he is to be born as a child. So it, it really emphasizes the, the Messiah's two natures, that of God and that of child, but it also conveys along with it the humble means by which um, God will deliver the Israelites, Judah, I should say. Well, and also by making mention um of David and the line of David in here kind of emphasizes that it will be, there's, there's this earthly human element of it. 
as, as well. There, and it goes right back to the fulfillment, mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the promise to David that there would be that Messiah through his lineage. And we get that actually in the, um, the, the readings, uh, the New Testament paired readings. The one from the, the Gospel of Luke goes through that, that genealogy and points and directs um, Christ or shows us that Christ is the, the offspring of David. So it is, yeah, that, again, connecting us back to that messianic promise. And it, it, it's also, what's interesting is that when it talks about the Messiah, it describes him as a king. But he never refers to the Messiah as a king. So in the description, we're told, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will have authority. But when we're told of him having authority, it doesn't say that he's going to be king. And of the names that are given, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, no king name is used. And I think this is kind of like a, a slap in um, King Ahaz's face because it's saying that you may be a king, but the way that you've been acting, the way that the kings in the past have been acting, um, they're only king by name. Here is one who is coming who will be king by deed. Right, and you mentioned the, you're putting away all these uh, garments and symbols of warfare. His authority doesn't come from conquering, which is you, what you typically think of as an earthly king, that that's how they gain power and authority is by conquering others. This is entirely different. Right, the, the authority comes because he himself is God. Yeah. Certainly he, he, he is king, he conquers, but not quite in the same, same way as we would expect, yeah. And of course, the, we, we see this fulfillment being done more fully in Christ. And I think the, it's important to call this out, too, because we don't want to be caught up thinking that it was only, um, you know, I emphasize the historical component to it, but it, it isn't only fulfilled in history. Um, in fact, King Ahaz decides to still turn away from God. So instead of trusting in God, he actually ended up allying himself with Assyria instead of Israel or Judah or trusting in God, he allied himself with Assyria. So he actually goes against trusting in God in the end. But um, so this is, this is not fulfilled just in, in history, but has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And we see that one with the, the messianic nature of this person. There wasn't someone who came who was God um, in, in the flesh to rule during King Ahaz's day. But then also the way that Isaiah speaks, when he's speaking to King Ahaz, he's actually speaking in, I don't know if you caught, caught it, the, it, the past tense, the perfect. And we call this the, um, it's actually a prophetic perfect. Isaiah sees this being fulfilled in Christ so clearly, it's as if he's looking back into time to see it being fulfilled. So it's a beautiful image, a beautiful rhetorical device that Isaiah uses.
And I think there's that subtlety of, of case that you mentioned that I think these days I think is, is kind of eroding from our language. I mean, even what's happening in English is, is you, you see um, carelessness with grammar to the point where, where you're losing the, the subtleties that those different cases can actually lend to the meaning of things. Um, I think, for example, of uh, just the, um, uh, the subjunctive case, like, I wish I were. Mm. That's people now say, I wish I was. Well, that, those, are, those are totally different things. Those are totally different cases. And so you lose that subtlety of, of, of meaning. So uh, what you're a student of languages and you're kind of, <laughs> kind of getting, getting to know that, but, but I think that's, that's incredible that even in Isaiah that, that there's something that it's identified as prophetic, perfect. I, think, I just think that's great. I think so too. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's something that you really need to, you know, something, as you point out, something that we may not recognize immediately in our own language because of how sloppy things have become in English. And yet... Um, it's important that, that scripture and that we have um, good translators who bring this across and that we can study and see that yet in our, in our um, Bibles. Right, that it's, that it's recognized there. Well, and then there's just, then there's simply the poetry of it too. I mean, this, this whole passage is just written in beautiful poetry and you hope that when it's rendered in, in our language, in the English, that it comes across that way. And I think I think this passage successfully does that. And I think it speaks to a lot of people because it does read, read very poetically. It does. And there's a lot of um, things that it plays off of, like the theme of light. And um, certainly that's uh, also what comes across in our hymns. And we, we see that element of music being tied into the hymn, which we'll, which we'll take a look at in a little bit. I think this would be a good time to uh, jump into our, our hymn, which actually carries a lot of that imagery of light and darkness as well. Would you mind sharing with us what our hymn of the, of the day is going to be? This hymn is a, another one of those paraphrases. A couple of weeks ago, we did Comfort, Comfort, which was literally right out of Isaiah as well, and, and a nice paraphrase of that. This hymn is similar to that. It's the people that in darkness sat, which if you have a Lutheran service book, is number 412. It's also in TLH, I, I, I did not look up the number to that, but uh, it's been a hymn that's been in our Lutheran repertoire for a long time already. And um, it, um, it was written by John Morrison, who was uh, um, a, a priest in the Church of England in the late 18th century. And um, some of the language of it, uh, so we start there that it was originally written in English. We don't have to worry about it being a translation from German and maybe something being lost there. But even, be, even being written in English, this hymn has undergone some uh, revisions over the years just uh, in terms of language. The original title was The Race That Long in Darkness Pine. I think the word we've arrived at now, the people that in darkness sat is probably just, it rolls off the tongue a little bit more easily. And, and at least for our modern ears, it's a little bit more satisfying. But it, it, it addresses that very beginning um, of Isaiah. Um, and almost, I mean, the phrase, phraseology is almost the same. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I think it captures that much better to, to have made those changes. 
So in that great monument of hymnody from the middle of the 19th century, the hymns ancient and modern, which was that collection of, of uh, English language hymns in, in England, the version that appears in there is by and large the inversion that we have in our hymnal. And it very clearly uses that same language from Isaiah. And we were talking a lot about this imagery of putting away the armaments and the, and the things of war. And that's really captured in stanza three of this. If you look at stanza three, um, to us a child of hope is born, to us a son is given, and on his shoulder ever rests all power in earth and heaven, all power in earth and heaven. So there's that, that turn of phrase that we're looking for that says this is a different type of king. This is a king who, who is God, so that is why he has this authority. He doesn't have to conquer. And by referring to him as a child, um, there's that reference again, uh, for unto us a child is born, that there's that humble state of being a child. So it really encapsulates uh, right there. Now this was, this was something that Handel was drawn to uh, in the Messiah. I think one of the most famous choruses from Handel's Messiah is for unto us a child is born. So he was definitely attracted to this passage as well and emphasizing that um, he used only this, this second half of the passage that we're considering, um, not that first half where it talks about the light. The passage that we talked about from Isaiah, um, I don't know if you, you happen to, to look that up, but it does appear twice in our lectionary. It appears on Christmas Eve, and that's where we'll hear it this year. Uh, for our Christmas Eve services, it will be the Old Testament reading. But it also appears in the season of uh, Epiphany. I think it's the, um, the third week of Epiphany of, of the A year. We're, we'll, we're now in the B year, but it was, it was in the A year. So we heard it twice last year, both on Christmas Eve and during Epiphany. And this hymn, the editors of our hymnal decided, well, we're going to put it in the Epiphany section. And I think that's a, that's a, a tough call because the reading appears during the Christmas season, but it speaks about light. A lot of the imagery of it is about light. So I understand why they decided, well, we'll, we'll put it in the epiphany section of the hymnal. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, both texts as well as uh, hymns that could kind of flow between these different seasons relatively easily, huh? Mm -hmm. And, um, it's also, uh, it also makes a nice pairing with another hymn that we have in our hymnal 389, which is um, one that will be the sermon hymn on Christmas Day. Um, Let all together praise our God is the beginning of that one, 389, if you want to look, look that one up. These two hymns are the only two in our hymnal that share this same hymn tune. And the hymn tune is uh, in German, Lob Gott, ihr Christen. Uh, praise God, you Christians, um, is, is the literal translation. And uh, as we've learned that a lot of German hymn tunes, they'll take their name in German from that first line of the text, and that's true in, in this case. So the hymn tune is older. The hymn tune is from the 16th century by a man named Nicholas Hermann, and who also wrote the text. So he wrote both text and tune 
for the one that's in the Christmas section, 389. But then John Morrison came along later and wrote this text uh, based on Isaiah 9. That, that's the reading that we're, we considered today. Hermann was a, a cantor in uh, um, Joachim's Tal, and much like, much like Bach, what his job was is it was to teach the students, and kind of on the model of Luther, if he needed to teach them or wanted to teach them through music, he wrote his own hymn text. And he wrote about 200 hymn texts for his own use in the school there. So uh, again, much like both Bach and Luther using music as a means of, of teaching the students that were in his charge. For today, um, I propose, uh, why don't we sing stanzas one and three and four, and I think by choosing those, you'll hear how the imagery from the Isaiah passage that we were focusing on today really comes through in those stanzas. It, it comes through, it permeates the entire hymn, but certainly in those three stanzas. It's, it's also a very, I think, easily singable tune um, for a couple of reasons. It's very, very logical the way it's constructed melodically, but then also it occupies a fairly narrow vocal range. So you don't have to extend really high, you don't have to extend really low, you don't have many large leaps in the melody, and I think it makes it very singable. The people that in darkness sat a glorious light have seen, the light has shined on them who long in shades of death have been. In shades of death have To us a child of hope is born, to us a son is given, and on his shoulder ever rests all power in earth and heaven, all power in earth and heaven. His name shall be the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Lord, the Wonderful, the Counselor, the God by all adored, the God by all adored. And in the, um, in the hymn that, that um, is the parallel to this by Hermann uh, 389, um, there's a lot of focus on uh, the incarnation of Christ, that it's God incarnate. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing your, your sermon on Christmas Day as it emphasizes that, as that is the focal point of the readings on Christmas Day um, from John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, whereas on Christmas Eve, the focus tends to be very much on the humanity of God, the, the, the baby in the manger, and then that flips to Christmas Day. So um, I highly recommend coming back to church on Christmas Day because you, you, get the, you get both elements. You get the divine on Christmas Day, and you get the human from Christmas Eve. You do, yeah. And I I, I love seeing that, that, that this hymn here, um, it, it really brings out each of the names, you know, who that, who that child is 
um, directly from Isaiah, Prince of Peace, Everlasting God, Wonderful Counselor. And I love also in stanza six when it, it goes on to say, Lord Jesus, reign in us, we pray. And it really, for me anyways, um, brings me back to the whole issue that uh, King Ahaz was facing, whether or not to trust in um, the nations or the strength of nations or trust in God. That same question is brought now to us where it's a, where is our trust in? And our trust goes back to that one individual who is God and man that we celebrate on Christmas. Well, and there's that element, once again, of the sovereignty of God right there, that it's, that it's, he is sovereign over everything. Trust in him, uh, not, not earthly princes. Yes. Okay, we continue with the, the litany from daily prayer. O Lord. Have mercy on us. O Christ. Have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Join us for our Christmas Eve services this year. All of them will be offering the Sacrament of Holy Communion on Sunday the 24th. The first service is at 10 a.m., a service of carols and readings. Second service is at 4.30 p.m. The third service is at 7 p.m. It's a festival service with a half an hour of pre-service music beginning at 6.30. And the final service on Christmas Eve is at 10 p.m. The last three services on Christmas Eve are all candlelight services. And on Christmas Day, there's one 10 a.m. service. On New Year's Eve, there's also one service, and that will be at 9 a.m. And on the same evening, there's a 6.30 p.m. New Year's Eve service.